five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Boucher. Welcome to the Space Economy Podcast and the second episode in our special series, Doing Business in the Solar System, hosted by Elizabeth Howell. Today, Elizabeth and her guests discuss the problem of property in space. Listen in. Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a Space View podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. It's hard to believe how fast private spaceflight is expanding across the solar system. We've seen companies fly cargo and people to the International Space Station. Other companies do business in telecommunications, observations, or other activities in Earth orbit. Next might be the moon. Later this decade, NASA wants to partner with private companies for lunar exploration. But what kind of legal questions need to be considered? Can we really mine other worlds? And if we do, what are the ramifications for space companies? To answer these questions, today we'll speak with Ram Jacou. He is acting director at the McGill Institute of Air and Space Law in Montreal, Canada. Some of his many fields of research include international space law, law of space commercialization, and government regulation of space activities. Welcome, Professor Jacou. Thank you very much for inviting me. Anytime. So earlier this month, as you well know, we celebrated the 60th anniversary of human spaceflight, which took place in 1961. But it was um, only a little bit later, right, that we had some of the legal framework come into place to support spaceflight. So can you give me a couple of examples? First of all, there's, of course, the Outer Space Treaty. Can you talk to listeners about what that is and why it's important? Yes. First thing is that the space law started almost at the same time the, when the first satellite was launched in 1957. Um, the, the first resolution adopted by the United Nations General Assembly was adopted in 1958. Uh, and then that resolution became a, a basis for international declaration, again, by the United Nations General Assembly in 1963. And 1963 declaration, which contains the principle which have been taken in total, in total, in, in the Outer Space Treaty. So that means space law did not start in 1967 when the treaty was adopted. It was adopted earlier. Uh, it was based on the consensus reached by the international community back in 57, then 63, and, and, and then, of, um, then 67 later on. Uh, so what this treaty is, the treaty is, we have to understand the context of geopolitics at that time, it, it arose. Uh, as a matter of space, the A's started during Cold War. So it is the product of Cold War. At the same time, it is also important to note that is the time when the developing countries gained uh, majority in the United Nations General Assembly. So it was not the issue of concern between East and West, but also North and South. And that politics has colored the provisions of the treaty, what we have. So this treaty was drafted over a period of, again, mainly based on 1963 declaration, but on the basis of consensus reached by the international community. And that is a very important to keep in mind. Consensus by international community, North, South, East, West. The first provision, when I'll just you know mention only 
few provisions which are very critical to keep in mind that outer space does not belong to a single nation or a group of nation. It is to be used and explored in the benefit and the interest of all countries. Irrespective of the degree of their economic or scientific development, that means the United States has the same right as Fiji or Botswana. Botswana has the same right to explore and use outer space as United States. That is a very fundamental point. Based on that, that serves the foundation. That means everybody should be allowed free to explore and use. And the freedom and exploration is subject to equality of all nations without discrimination of any kind. So that is, again, the second provision. The third is nobody is allowed to appropriate part or whole of outer space including planets. So these are the foundations, the really foundations of the, of the treaty adopted by consensus by international community at that time. The other provisions that deal with that it, outer space should be explored and used for uh, promoting international peace and security. And governments are responsible for the action of the private companies. The private companies can explore and use outer space with the prior permission of the governments uh, in which uh, they are incorporated. And, and, and then is the question of settlement of disputes that everybody should be settling the disputes on the basis of cooperation, understanding in this. And the last one that is that in case damage is caused by private company, it is to be borne by the, the claim can be made by the government. So the governments are responsible, making sure the treaty is respected by the private actors, but also the government can be liable in case the governments or private companies cause damage to, to others. So these are the, the really the foundations. Of course, in that there are other treaties were adopted. Uh, first was of course, later on was the registration convention simply to see every space object which is sent must have a registration number it's very much similar to cars we drive every day and and then is also the the issue of rescue and return that mean in case of damage sorry in case of emergency in case astronauts have to land somewhere and and the other states are under obligation to to rescue and return those uh, astronauts to the country uh, where they came from. And that's about also with respect to space objects like, you know, satellites in that. And the third one, you know, sorry, the, the fourth one is a liability convention, which actually expanded the provisions of the Outer Space Treaty, saying the governments are liable in case the damage is caused by their space objects or by the objects of their private companies. This provides the process how to make a claim and how to get compensation. And the last one is which is commonly called is Moon Treaty, which is not actually Moon Treaty. It's a Moon Agreement. There's, a, there's, there's a some minor difference, but that's what it is. That means it says that Moon and celestial bodies are and their resources are common heritage of mankind. That means they do not belong to any single nation. They belong to, to the humanity in that. And there has to be process for exploration and exploitation. 
the first treaty, 1967 Outer Space Treaty, has been ratified by 110 states, fairly large number of countries. But the last agreement, Moon Agreement, has been ratified by, uh, I think it's about 18 countries. So that is what the, the whole spectrum of the uh, of, of, of space law. In addition to these treaties, general international is applicable, United Nations Charter is applicable, ITU Convention uh, is applicable, and there are a host of other, other treaties. So space law is not limited to the five treaties which I mentioned mentioned to you. So whenever we discuss any issue about space, we should also look at the principles outside these five treaties. Understood. And um, as you've been pointing out, these treaties, even though they were formulated long ago, they still have implications for, say, private companies that are landing on the moon, even though we didn't really think about that in the same way back in the 1960s and the 1970s, because it was more government managed. Is there any way that we could revisit or perhaps should be revisiting these various agreements and treaties for private companies, or is it fairly good the way it is? Uh the first thing is you pointed out very correctly. These are treaties which are applicable today. People call they are outdated, but they are not outdated. To me, they are current law today. So it's a question of any, any law, for example, if we, we want to drive on the you know, left, we, do, we are required to drive on the right-hand side. Tomorrow something happens, say, well, it's better to drive on the left-hand side. Until the law is changed, the law which requires you to drive on the right-hand side is the law. So that is very important to keep keep in mind. So they are not outdated. What is there? It is that few things happened since the 60s or 70s or 80s. That needs, it needs to be, these treaties need to be expanded. So their new laws need to be, need to be adopted. Take the example, when the, you know, the, the Canadian constitution was adopted, you know, I'm talking about the North, British North America Act, things change. You need to keep on changing things to make, to, to be relevant to, to the current uh, current the current situation. So there is need to be looked at that. Now, your specific question about uh, uh, the application of the treaties to the private sector, they are very much relevant. Now, question is, under international generally, private companies are not directly regulated. I'm saying general, not only space law. So that means the private companies are regulated, the actions of private companies are regulated through their governments. So, which I mentioned to you earlier, uh, under the Outer Space Treaty, it's the governments which are responsible and liable for the action of the private companies. So if you say the private companies are free to explore, I say one can say, yes, they are free to explore only pursuant to authorization and continuous supervision of their governments. Now, this rule is nothing different. Same thing applies with respect to radio frequencies. A private company wants to use in Canada, that company is not free to pick up any radio frequency and start using it. That company needs a license from the government of Canada. The space is not different from that point of view. So private companies are allowed subject to the, the prior authorization and continuous supervision of their respective governments. That makes a lot of sense, exactly. So what I found interesting about these, these treaties is that they relate to managing private claims on solar system bodies. And that's something that we're kind of 
moving into probably in the next decade or so, because um, just thinking here, we've got NASA and its Artemis program, which is hoping to be landing around 2024 or so, along with a network of private landers, rovers, other things that are being constructed with companies. And that's all, of course, support that. So can we talk a little bit about how this framework is going to be working in this new environment where we have a government and various private companies working together on the moon? Like, how are we going to be allocating all this and making sure that everybody's um, interests are respected? To me, they are very simple. The simplicity lies in that governments are responsible and liable. What uh, whosoever goes to a party speech, for example, in Artemis um, program has to be going under the authorization and continuous supervision of the respected government. Private companies in the United States will need a license from the government of the United States is the government which is participating. Same thing in Canada. Government of Canada is a party to outer space treaty. Canadian private companies want to participate in this program, they will be participating through the government of Canada. This is nothing, again, I say nothing new, not only with respect to duty frequencies, but like the International Space Station. Canada is a party to intergovernmental agreement on the International Space Station. So is, is United States, Japan, Russia, Europe. They're all intergovernmental agreements. The private companies are acting under the authorization of the, of the governments. And what's really interesting, too, is there are a number of companies that are looking at doing mining on the moon and also on asteroids. Uh, there are probably some folks out there who remember that about five or 10 years ago, there were a few companies that were saying we want to be focusing on mining on asteroids, although that might be a little further in the future that they'd hoped. But um, if that happens to come into place, this idea of taking resources from other worlds and using them for various purposes, what kind of legal ramifications would there be for either a government or a private company wanting to do that, given the framework of the treaties? Well, first thing is that the private, I mentioned, maybe it's worth repeating it because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, the private companies will be doing all these things on behalf of the government. The governments will be the one who is giving license. So private companies will be mining these sources as authorized by the governments, okay? The private companies cannot do on their own legally. That's, that's the, the restriction there. Uh, and, and second thing is that under the Outer Space Treaty, uh, Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty is very clear. Uh, there is no, uh, there's a clear prohibition of appropriation of outer space and, and celestial bodies. Now, there's a difference of opinion. Uh, some people, some governments believe that that appropriation, that provision, appropriation does not apply to natural sources. The others do not believe in that. Leave. It it is it's covered. Uh, appropriation is uh, up, sorry. Appropriation includes natural sources. That means there's a prohibition of appropriating natural sources of uh, of moon and other celestial bodies. But the intention of the Outer Space Treaty was not to restrict exploration and use. The intention of the Outer Space Treaty or the drafter was to encourage and facilitate. That means there is a need for clarification of that law. Uh, so that means anybody who is going there, they are not allowed to do that. So that means their governments have to get together and, and sort out this, this relationship, that, that provision. Uh, who can go, who can appropriate, who can you know, um, um, 
extract the resources, what can they do? Uh, so it is the responsibility of the governments to, to clear or adopt the treaties to clarify that situation. That makes a lot of sense. And um, given that the Artemis program might be happening relatively soon, uh, mid-2020s, let's call it, or maybe even a little later in the decade, do you know what kinds of discussions are going on right now to make sure that these various legal uh, matters have been uh, addressed ahead of time that we were kind of planning for when we have the private companies, the governments, the responsibilities all worked out there? Well, the, the governments are um, making efforts, at, at least the, the parties of these the governments which have signed up for this, uh, these accords. Canada is one of them. There's a small number of countries, I think eight of them only. The others may join in, the others may not join it also. Uh, but just one point that China and Russia are developing their own you know, um, program uh, to go and mining uh, the resources of the moon. So they're not joining Artemis uh, you know, accord. So the governments, which, to the best of my knowledge, they are looking at what are the ways. First thing is the, the development of technology, the question of cooperation, avoidance of competition, avoidance of problems, and avoidance of, of say, contamination. Uh, all those things are being uh, worked out. And, and also who goes where, what kind of relationship they will have among themselves, so what relationship these governments will have with the, with the private companies. They keep in mind, Artemis Accords are among the governments. They are not between the private companies. So the private companies need to work under the obligation their respective governments have undertaken. So that is that is what is the one thing which stands out to me is, is very uh, two actually points from Artemis Accord. One thing is, is that they say there can be safety zones on the on, on, on the moon, for example. So the the partners, partner governments can have a have a demarcation of the area uh, for safety purposes. Um, I personally find it's it's pretty odd. Simply safety from whom? Among themselves, they can work out what is the, so in my view, I don't think they are safety zones. To me, they are security zones. So they're, they're concerned that somebody else will come and disturb their operations. Now, question is who else is going there? Beside these seven, eight, eight, nine countries. Of course, the Russians and Chinese will come. So to me, these members of the Artemis Accord, these states which have signed up that, they're concerned about the security of those interests. So that means they will be setting up some kind of defense systems to protect themselves. And that is, I think, a bit troublesome. The Outer Space Treaty Article 4 prohibits any kind of uh, for military operations and establishment of military bases, testing on weapons. That is the area which you need to be clarified. So I repeat what I said. I don't think these are safety zones. They are security zones. I think one has to look at that. And I think it is, it is better to clarify earlier so there is no conflict tomorrow. The other is the issue of the point you mentioned earlier about taking up uh, resources, uh, and that is that needs to be clarified very, very 
you know, carefully. Now, the point has been made uh, by somebody in Canada saying that this is nothing new and the governments have taken up resources from the moon and, and used for exploration purposes. Yes, they, they did that, but the, the, the examples of one or two states do not create precedent. State practice has not been established that you can go and, and appropriate the resources, legally speaking. Now, if you need it, why work out some, some arrangement with other countries? Uh, say what, what, what can be extracted, what can be brought? And so those are the two major uh, points which I think need to be uh, clarified before one can see you know, conflict-free uh, exploration and uses of uh, outer space. Third may be, if I can raise the issue of uh, what is called planetary protection. That means there has to be sufficient uh, technical standards, procedure for avoidance of contamination of the moon and other things. I don't think they are there yet. I think governments involved in Artemis you know, program or governments like China and Russia are doing their own thing. They should look at that. They should not be contaminating um, the environment of, of the moon. And as a matter of fact, should not bring any kind of bacteria back to Earth. That will be quite dangerous. But that area, in my view, to the best of my knowledge, has not been explored sufficiently or addressed sufficiently. There will be some other challenges coming up with Artemis, and I guess also with programs afterwards, right? If we're thinking about, for example, as NASA hopes to, to have people on Mars in about 15 or 20 years, right? That would be another thing we have to start to look at. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that is the main reason that why don't you start something better today? So this this worst situation, the bad situation, which you are go getting into that may become precedent tomorrow for going to Mars also. And, and also we do not really know, we don't, at least the world does not know, fully know what kind of contamination humans will be causing on, on the celestial bodies and what kind of um, bacteria or viruses or all kinds of things will be brought back. I think, and that may be, you know, situation which will be point of no return. Things may be pretty bad. And on and, and top of that, you're talking about routine trips to go to moon or, or then to Mars. The routine trip means there, there's a lot of, going to be a lot of traffic. We do not have a sufficient rules for traffic management and the possibility of accidents on the way and, and, and coming back. We only know that the world has already reached the point of no return and what is a tipping point with respect to space debris. So space debris is increasing exponentially and that is going to be causing a lot of problems. So what will happen when these routine operations go to moon and come back? What will they will add to, to space debris. How space debris, the pieces of junk, will not be causing damage to these, these crafts going back and forth in, in, uh, between Earth and, 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 and the moon. Those are very important points. Traffic management, space situation awareness. Who is doing what? What kind of, who is going up, who is coming down? Which route, what orbit they are following? Those are very critical points which need to be addressed, and I will say urgently. Agreed. And so uh, when it comes to researching these various forms of property claims we've been discussing, um, what kind of work is your group doing over at McGill? What kind of things have you been thinking about? 
Well, the, these issues which you have raised, which are very relevant, very good questions. We are looking at that. We are seeing what the law is, and we are also looking what the law should be. I think this is what we, we, we people should keep in mind. If I wish this, the law should be, perhaps this, the law should have been. I think one should be very careful reaching that kind of uh, conclusion. And we should keep what the law is, the distinction between, I mentioned to you, the law today, in my view, Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty prohibits the appropriation of the outer space and moon and their resources. That's the law today. Now, the question is what the law should be. That means we need to clarify that provision with respect to going forward. So rather than the, the people or the governments who believe they are allowed to appropriate the resources of the moon under that, I think that is to me is, is a kind of thing what the law should have been and they believe this is the law. I think that kind of things we are addressing these issues. Secondly, what is the best way for humanity to go to, to the view we look, you know, we... we the areas we look at further uh, in detail is what are the best way of it to 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 us or to me personally i can say rather than speaking on behalf of my colleagues i say i will say that there is a cooperation among nations cooperative arrangement for governments rather than competition that means you can have international um, consortiums like we have an international space station and earlier we have an intersat organization so they the countries and their private companies pool their technical and financial resources to develop the develop technologies and go for exploitation of the resources. So that means there will be less, you can avoid conflicts. And, and that means the, the standards, the technical standards to protect earth and space could be adopted easily. And also it will be, everybody can be allowed to participate. If you have, for example, if you set up a, a international company or international organization or consortium of sort, you allow governments or their private company to participate. Why that has to be one company from the United States or Canada go and trying to do everything. And one, what happens if that company fails or declare bankruptcy, who is going to create their mess? So I think the right way to go further is international cooperation initiated by the government with full participation of the private company. So all the things are done in orderly manner for making the benefits as uh, spread out as possible. Well, thank you very much for your time. And just another quick question before we close. If I was a space business person interested in following the latest um, ramifications, the latest arrangements in space law, where would you recommend that I go? Well, the first thing is, you know, um, you can come to us as we are talking about it. Um, the, I, I think the, seriously, I think you should go and talk to the government of Canada. Now, who in the government of Canada? Obviously, um, Canadian Space Agency should be the first one. Um, but again, uh, I will say Industry Canada um, and also Department of Foreign Affairs. And then within NASA, if I was an American, where would I go there? The NASA can provide you information. Keep in mind, NASA is a research institution. NASA is not a regulatory body. For that, the, 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 and the companies in the United States, they should go to the Department of Commerce. Uh, and, and of course, they need a license from Federal Communication Commission for the use of 
frequencies. They need a license from the um, uh, Federal Aviation Administration with respect to um, exploring uh, resources in, in, in space. Well, thank you once again for your time. I really do appreciate that. So uh, that was Ram Jacou. He is Acting Director at the McGill Institute of Air and Space Law in Montreal, Canada. And this was a discussion about space law on doing business in the solar system. Thanks very much, everyone. See you next time. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of Doing Business in the Solar System. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Economy Space, to contact us, or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Please remember, if you can, we really would like you to rate our podcast on whatever platform you're on, because that'll help others discover us. Thank you.